I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 52 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 15 features a shocking story in which Jesus learns more about God's will for his life from someone else. Who is even more shocking? If you are at all new to Van City Church, uh, we go on quite a bit about this figure of history known as Jesus of Nazareth. And we're constantly framing our relationship to Jesus through this idea of apprenticeship. See, often uh, the, the whole idea of following Jesus is arranged around two premises. You have belief, belief, and ethics, meaning those who claim to be Christians believe certain things intellectually, and then ideally they behave a certain way as a result. And while it's true that belief and ethics are certainly aspects of what it means to follow Jesus, we think a better paradigm for understanding this whole thing is apprenticeship. So if one wants to become, say, a welder or something, they might apprentice a welder. They wouldn't decide intellectually that they believe in welding and then grab a torch or whatever, you know, a blowtorch. Does the welder use a blowtorch, Kyle? Does the welder use a blowtorch? They could. What else would you weld with? A welder is a unique <laughs> instrument? Sure, obviously. See, I don't apprentice a welder. Um, so they wouldn't just decide intellectually that they believe in welding and then go about it. They would understand that taking up the craft uh, of welding would require learning new terms and instruments, uh, a new lifestyle, new rhythms of living, a new way of understanding things, learning, practice, more practice, more practice, and over time, more and more mastery as they go. Now, Jesus was a teacher. He was more than that, for sure, but not less. We believe that every student of Jesus adopts three lifelong goals in apprenticeship. The first is to be with Jesus, and it's really that simple, and that is they are in order. The first was that he called 12 that they might be with him. The idea is that you follow around your teacher every day, every night, sit with them, study with them, learn with them all the time so that you can become like Jesus. And then eventually, after you're with Jesus and you become like Jesus, you become more and more capable to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. See, we believe the way of Jesus is just that. It is a way of life. So all that to say, we want to understand the teachings of Jesus so that we can actually put them into practice. Every few months, if you know the rhythm of our church, we take on a new spiritual discipline or a new principle of emotional health or spiritual health and maturity. We'll talk about it here for a few weeks, and then we go out into smaller groups that we call Van City Communities. That's what Basics is about. And then we actually give them a shot together. Now, in a few weeks, we'll be taking on a new practice together. But in the meantime, in between those uh, bits of spiritual discipline, emotional health. We're continuing our journey through one biography of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew. So again, lots of Jesus, lots of Jesus here, and that's by design. All that to say, let's read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. Let's begin with verse 21. It says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 
The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So let's begin with this. Here's a shocker. Jesus learns something in this story. So before we unpack this text in detail, let me take a brief detour so that we can wrestle with this idea because a lot hangs on it. Now, it shouldn't be shocking that Jesus learns, but for some of us it is. I say it shouldn't be shocking because the New Testament is pretty clear that Jesus learns things. Look at this from chapter 2 of Luke's gospel that says, Jesus grew in wisdom. In other words, he learned and he also got bigger and in favor with God and man. Or look at this from Hebrews chapter 5, really interesting. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In the story of Mark's gospel, Jesus asks non-rhetorical questions about someone he wants to heal. It's pretty simple. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. Later in Mark 5.30, the story of the woman who has a menstrual disorder, Jesus knows something happens when the woman touches his cloak, but he doesn't know who did it, so he has to actually ask. And once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? So Jesus, in other words, was not omniscient. There were things that he did not know, and there were things that he learned. He was, at one point, for example, a human infant, and then a toddler and a small child and so on. Have you ever spent time with an infant? They don't know anything at all. The other night at our community, there was a small uproar when an infant almost managed to flip itself over. And we were freaking out. Look at, he's almost learned to turn over. I was thinking, man, I can do that so easy. No one seems impressed with me. It's a horrible double standard. So Jesus was not an all-knowing toddler, in other words. He had to learn things. Now, most of us can reconcile that. You're like, yeah, I guess he didn't come out of the womb knowing everything. But some of us get fidgety at the idea of adult Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord operating in full power of his identity. Some of us feel weird about that Jesus having to learn stuff. And here's why. One of the identifying beliefs of every disciple of Jesus down throughout church history has been that though Jesus was actually fully a human being, he was also the physical embodiment of the creator God. We call this in theology the incarnation. So he was both completely human and completely God concurrently. Inside the church, Jesus is most often spoke of in terms of the latter. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He is Yahweh come among us. And every disciple of Jesus affirms these things to be true, or else they are not a disciple of Jesus. But for the characters of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is most often referred to as rabbi, which is a word that just means teacher. Now, amongst people talking about Jesus, in specific, specifically in the Western world and in America, there's sort of a split in the tendency to identify Jesus first and foremost as a teacher and then nothing more, or first and foremost as God and nothing else. So if you grew up in a conservative church context, for example, you likely heard quite a bit about Jesus as the Son of God, but little to nothing about Jesus the teacher. 
Because teacher is kind of a, an earthly title for the man that we believe was somehow also God himself in the flesh. And so an orthodoxy wrestling match ensues. The more the progressive branch of the church emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, the more the conservative wing of the church emphasizes the divinity of Jesus. But the beauty of this entire story is the concurrency of both things. The very idea that the most powerful supreme being in the universe would lower himself to become a human baby born to poor teenagers is the staggering wonder and, and heartbreaking beauty of the character of God. One master apprentice of Jesus called Paul describes that wonder this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Messiah Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a Roman cross, humiliating Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus the King is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God emptying himself in Paul's language, making himself nothing to the degree that Jesus even dies. A term we like to use is Jesus is God laying down the God card. God, for example, is everywhere at once, but Jesus is in one place at one time. God is all-powerful, but Jesus gets tired if you read the story. He gets hungry and he even dies. God knows all of reality perfectly all the time, but Jesus has to learn. So the incredible miracles of Jesus, his prophetic foresight into the future, his intuition, none of that happens at the whim of Jesus' limitless God power. Instead, Jesus acts as an example of one truly submitted to the Father and operating in the Holy Spirit, which is exactly why Jesus says explicitly, you can do this stuff too, better stuff even. In the language of John, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. So Jesus was a Galilean Jew. He lived in the first century in Palestine. He was in many ways a man of his time and place, meaning though he was the greatest teacher the world has ever known, he mostly spoke and thought and lived in a Galilee, as a Galilean Jew who lived in first century Palestine, and he learned. And this story is particularly remarkable because in it, Jesus not only learns, he learns from a Canaanite Woman. So let's start with verse 21 and let's figure this thing out one line at a time. Again, it begins like this. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. So in context, Tyre and Sidon would have read for Matthew's original audience as essentially like bad place, pagan land. 
uh, the land of people who are far from God, the land of God's enemies. Jesus has, uh, in the story up to this point, encountered Gentiles or non-Jewish people or pagans, but he's relegated most of his work to Jewish spheres of life. In this story, he's wandered off into thoroughly non-Jewish territory. So for Matthew's Jewish readers, that's an immediate like, uh uh-oh, from the story's outset. And once there, we're met immediately by a Canaanite woman. Now, we have uh, exploding words to identify certain people in certain contexts. They aren't necessarily negative or hateful in and of themselves, but said by certain people in certain ways, and they ignite with inferred hostility. So if, uh, for example, a hyper-conservative, far-right-wing alarmist says something like Arab, they can wield it like it's an insult in and of themselves. In my context, I grew up in the Deep South, surrounded by hideous racism all the time, and if a racist Southerner just says the word black, it ignites with something hostile. If a far left on the other side of things, progressive social justice warrior says something like white cisgendered male, those words ignite with all kinds of inferences. So in this text, Canaanite woman is an exploding term. For Matthew's reader, the single character of a Canaanite, let alone a Canaanite woman, represents everything dangerous to the faith of Israel. One scholar sums it up thusly when they wrote, Canaanite was part of traditional biblical vocabulary for the most persistent and insidious of Israel's enemies in the Old Testament period, those whom God had driven out before his people Israel and whose idolatrous region was a constant threat to the religious purity of the people of Yahweh. And yet, when this Canaanite woman in no-no bad pagan land shows up, she cries out to Jesus, of all people, and she says, Lord... Son of David. So scholars point out that she's showing a tremendous amount of respect to Jesus. It's actually bordering on worship. She identifies him as both her authority by saying Lord, and then she identifies him by his messianic title, Son of David. So even the way that she calls out to Jesus, she's acknowledging with reverence that she believes Jesus is who he claims to be. Word has been spreading about this guy all over town. And remember, this comes at a point in the story when Israel's leadership and much of Israel's population, uh, in the face of incredible evidence, are either struggling to accept Jesus or else rejecting him outright. Just before this story, for example, Jesus has been rejected by his hometown, he's been rejected by his own family, he's been rejected by the religious leaders, and even some of his followers. Then he wanders into pagan country, and immediately there appears an embodiment of the less than or the enemy, and she wants Jesus' help. She believes Jesus is who he claims to be. And though it's actually her daughter who's suffering, the woman calls out, have mercy on me, in a gesture of shared suffering. So Matthew wants us to see that she's a loving and empathetic mother. Her daughter is in pain, so she's in pain. But look at what Jesus does. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. Now, this seems, at least to me, at the very least, rude, you know. But notice Jesus doesn't send the woman away even when the idea seems to be like the primary concern of everyone around him. In fact, the language implies that she was kind of shouting at them, causing a scene, which is why the disciples were like, geez, she won't be quiet, please get rid of her. And we're about to understand more about what Jesus is thinking, but here we only know that he's showing restraint. 
And notice that the disciples come off worse than the woman. Matthew specifically records the respect in the woman's address. And then he depicts the disciples as curt and disrespectful. They don't identify Jesus as Lord, which is something they typically do and something that the woman has done. So finally, Jesus speaks up, verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, the language is nonspecific here. To whom is Jesus responding? Is it the disciples or is it the woman? Some scholars argue he may be thinking out loud, kind of, because it's not very clear. He's not responded directly to either of the clear requests at this point. So the woman still wants help, and he hasn't said yes or no. The disciples still want to get rid of her. He hasn't said yes or no. Jesus' answer doesn't actually resolve anything at this point. And though it doesn't seem compassionate, Jesus is acknowledging the limited scope of his mission and his appointment, at least at this point in the story. Everyone who has ever done like justice work or volunteered at a rescue mission or traveled in the developing world or worked with people who have no homes, you know well enough that based on resources, organization, infrastructure, you can only do so much. You often say no. You often turn people away based on resources and infrastructure. There's only so much you can do, and you organize your work around that reality so that you can do something. So Jesus is acknowledging the fact that he has a mission. It begins with Israel and that the woman's request isn't yet accommodated by this mission. And the bind is this. Jesus is sent to Israel first for a reason. If you know the story of the Bible, God promised his mission uh, to rescue the cosmos would come through Israel. But the plan has always been that through Israel, all people would be blessed. The plan has always been to rescue everyone. Now, Jesus is one dude, if you know the story. He's already struggling with crowds. He's already trying to keep the true scope of who he is kind of under wraps until the appropriate time. If Jesus begins the mission to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, prematurely, it could compromise the entire thing. Now, remember, Jesus is a portrait of emotional health and spiritual maturity. And health and maturity often means saying no to good things because there's only so much you can do well. N.T. Wright puts it this way. We are here, once again, at a point where Jesus' fundamental mission is being defined. He wasn't simply a traveling doctor whose task was to heal every sick person he met. He had a very specific calling. God's people, Israel, needed to know that their God was now at last fulfilling his promises. But this is about more than just a, a, a pragmatic mission brief, as if Jesus made all his decision based on specific parameters of his assignment. You know, like Jesus is that hardened archetypal character in a movie who cares only about the mission, and people around them are like, but what about this little girl we found along the way? She needs help. And Jesus is like, no, the mission, you know. You've seen the movies. Um, if you've been paying attention at all up to this point, you know really well that Jesus doesn't work that way. He overflows with compassion to all kinds of people, in particular, specifically the people who are on the margins of society. But Jesus was, like you and I, working to understand the will of God over his life. Bruner says it this way, this text teaches us as much about the struggle of Jesus to find the will of God as it does about the struggle of the woman to find the help of Jesus. And the two struggles are dramatically interrelated. For the woman will not find Jesus' help until Jesus finds God's will. Compare Gethsemane, lest anyone think it unworthy that Jesus struggled to know God's will at all. 
So this scholar is pointing out that in the Garden of Gethsemane, later in the story, Jesus actually agonizes to learn the will of God. If you know the story, he's a man in tremendous pain. He wants something. He doesn't know if what he wants can synchronize with what God wants. And he's being torn apart by the dilemma. There's actually a church in Israel today erected over the spot where Jesus may have agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a stone in the center of the church where, according to Catholic tradition at least, Jesus might have laid and wept. Such was his pain as he searched for the heart of God. The building itself is actually called the Church of Agony. I've been there. People come, they touch the stone, and they remember that Jesus, like us, agonized to find the will of God. It's beautiful. And since Jesus isn't omniscient, he learns more about God's will as his mission unfolds. Here, he simply explains the mission to the woman. But notice, even though there's a group of men surrounding Jesus telling him, hey, get rid of her, get rid of her, Jesus doesn't oblige them either. He does not send her away. So the woman amps things up. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So that sounds bad, right? <laughs> so in the story, Jesus finally answers the woman directly with an analogy, and it doesn't sound great, if we're being honest. In first century Israel, it was common for Jewish people to refer to Gentiles as dogs. Now, Jesus isn't calling her a dog directly, but he is employing that commonly used and understood language to craft a metaphor. So I was talking to one of my professors this week about this passage, and he was reminding me that the way we bristle at this metaphor reveals the modern lens through which we read the text, meaning in our world of hypersensitive, hyperfragile outrage hysteria, there is likely no end to the number of first century ancient Near Eastern cultural norms that would horrify the modern Western sensibility. And Jesus doesn't charge into his own culture screaming and brandishing a picket sign. Instead, he lives and embodies a better way, and he slowly moves the needle of the cultural compass in a new direction, often with subversive subtlety. But he does this as someone living and operating in the world of the ancient Near East. So we read all these shocking incidents in the life of Jesus, the controversies, the provocations, and there are plenty. It starts to sound like, man, Jesus just causes trouble everywhere he goes. But really, there are only 28 short chapters in Matthew's gospel to represent decades of Jesus' life. So he likely spent a lot of time just being a dude in first century Palestine, being a stonemason, which is how he spent the first bit of his life, being a teacher, being a son or a brother or a friend. That's sort of what's amazing about this whole story. So don't imagine Jesus like E.T. or, you know, like Gal Gadot and Wonder Woman, like some futuristic super being who's just baffled by their primitive surroundings and walking around holding things up like, what is this? You know, you know the, I'm doing the, you know the movie motif right? Yeah. Okay, great. He was a man living in first century Palestine. That was his home. He operated in those norms. He entered into its terms and its ideas. So if we approach this text with our hackles raised, offended by Jesus, we're essentially demanding that he adhere to modern Western sensibility. Because the issue isn't at all whether or not Jesus is racist or sexist. This short story, read to the end, reveals Jesus' radical rejection of both evils in a subversive and controversial way. Even so, Jesus does have an ordered mission. And he is working as a learning human being to best understand and carry out God's call on his life. And the metaphor he uses 
to say exactly that is pretty intense. There's no way around that. It sounds bad. But there's actually something subversive here lost in translation. The Greek word that Matthew uses for dog here is uh, kunarion as opposed to kuon. One is like common dog and the other is a domesticated animal that lives inside a house. So in this jarring metaphor, Jesus has brought the Canaanites into the house of Israel And the components of his metaphor imply that they belong under the same roof, that they will be fed, but in order. Same way that children eat at the table first and then they feed the dogs. But rather than be shocked and appalled, the woman continues to press. Uh, Jesus, if you remember, he just said it isn't right. And then he came out with this controversial metaphor. And then she rebuts in verse 27. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I love the way Bruner describes her persistence. He writes, She and her daughter are, at least, like house dogs themselves, in the house. She refuses to look at the shadow side of Jesus' remarks. Instead, she grasps at what he did not say in what he did say. He did not say, go away. And he did not say, no. Faith is holding on to Jesus for dear life, like a drowning person to a life raft, believing that Jesus is good even when his words do not seem to be. Now notice the woman immediately takes up Jesus' metaphor. She's used to it as well, she, and she builds it out. In it, she accepts the terms of the images, and she includes Jesus as the master of the table, and yet she uses the metaphor to disagree with him. So she's being respectful even in her rebut, and Jesus says, it's not right. She rebuts, albeit with respect, yes, it is, Lord. And now we arrive at the twist in the story, verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Something in Jesus shifts. He makes a statement. The woman disagrees. And then Jesus celebrates her and her faith. In fact, even the way he addresses her, the term that sounds like kind of flippant to us, woman, in Greek, it's actually filled with admiration and love, a term of affection and endearment. And the way Matthew reveals the twist is with brilliant literary panache. Bear with me for a moment. You'll love this at the end. Or maybe you won't, but you're going to hear it anyway. So in this terse, kind of straightforward, back-and-forth scene, each time the narrative cuts to Jesus, he's mentioned, in the, at least in the original Greek, with the personal pronoun, he. It isn't until the resolution that Jesus is named in the dialogue. In the first two responses of Jesus, Matthew doesn't identify to whom Jesus is responding. So it looks a, bit, a little bit like this. In verse 24, you get, but he responded and said. You don't know who or to whom. It's just kind of inferred. In verse 26, but he responded and said. Then after the woman challenges Jesus in verse 28, you get, then Jesus responded and said to her. So scholars are arguing that this is Jesus, or Matthew's way of identifying the moment that Jesus finds himself in the will of God and speaks definitively to the one in need. So in the story, there are actually three characters that have a kind of resolution. The mother is freed from her agony over her daughter. The daughter is freed from her affliction at home, presumably like, hey, look at that, better. And Jesus comes into a greater understanding of the will of God over his life. And what seemed like an insult transitions into a full-blown 
honor and celebration of a Canaanite woman in front of a bunch of Jewish apprentices. Now, remember, this story comes at a point where Jesus struggles to find faith amongst Israel, and now he finds it in a Canaanite woman. R.T. France points out this. Jesus appears insensitive and downright rude if the paracope or short story ended at verse 26. That impression would be unrelieved. But the story must be read as a whole. In the end, Jesus does exactly what the woman has asked and commends her faith in stronger terms than he uses for anyone else except the Roman centurion, if you know that story. Also, not a Jewish person. Or look at the way Brunner says it like this. What is certain is that the story does not end where it begins, in a racial standoff between the Jewish teacher and the Canaanite woman, and when eventually her appeal is granted, there is no sign of reluctance on Jesus' part, but rather an exceptionally warm commendation of her faith. So, it's a short story, but there's a lot here. This story beautifully foreshadows the New Testament motif of reconciliation between races and between men and women. So Jesus has already been bold in his willingness to speak with and heal Gentiles at a time when it would be deeply controversial to do so. But to waltz into like deep pagan territory and heal a Canaanite woman, of all people, was something else entirely. So imagine being taught from birth the inferiority of women and the evil of the Canaanite people. And then you become a student of Jesus, Jewish rabbi. One afternoon, your teacher, your Lord, celebrates a Canaanite woman as the great example of courageous faith. Now remember, for Jesus, faith is about much more than just intellectual belief. It's not like he's saying, hey, wow, you actually managed to believe in the face of all that. He's saying, now here's someone who gets it. Here's someone who gets everything that I'm about. For Jesus, faith is an all-encompassing way of life, living into the reality of God and God's kingdom. He's saying, here is someone who gets it when none of you know what the heck I'm talking about. Here is someone who gets it. So it's about much more than just gender and race. That's in there. But it's also about enemies. Jesus is willing to love and to serve the enemy. All of this, to me, seems particularly pressing in a time when the American consciousness is inflamed by ideas of race and gender and enemy. We love Jesus when he hates what we hate, you know? We love uh, the Jesus who honors the oppressed, who advocates for those on the margins of society, who criticizes and condemns the rich and the powerful. And all of that is true of Jesus, absolutely, for sure. But what about when Jesus invites the oppressor, to sit at the table. So in this story, Jesus welcomes the Canaanite woman. He destroys boundaries of race and sex, but he also, earlier in the story, welcomes the Roman centurion, the oppressor. Many of us uh, love a Jesus who will take crooked politicians to task, who will judge the religious and corrupt, who will vindicate the historically disenfranchised, and Jesus will do all those things, and with priority, But he also welcomes the hateful and the bigoted and the corrupt and the powerful and the backward and the oppressors. And to all of them, he invites, come, die, and then follow me. Have a seat at the table with everyone else. Because Jesus understood the heart of God. But, and please listen, Jesus worked to learn and to understand the heart of God. So before we end, I want us to wrestle with this amazing idea from tonight's text. For even Jesus, 
at times, struggled, agonized, fought to know and understand what God wanted from him. In my years talking to people about hearing God's voice, uh, I hear the same kinds of frustrations and disappointments all the time. We often feel defeated by our inability to discern God's voice with clarity or ease. In other words, we feel frustrated when we have no idea how God could talk to us, what he sounds like, what that's like. We imagine God as disappointed by our ineptitude, you know, like God is a frustrated parent and he's exhausted by having to repeat himself all the time. So he's just like, they don't get it. I'm not talking anymore. But this story is a beautiful reminder of the solidarity that we have with King Jesus. If Jesus sometimes wrestled to know the heart of God, don't you think he has patience for you when you do the same? We can struggle to know God. We can agonize over our inability to discern God's will. Not knowing God's will is not wrong. Again, this from Bruner. He writes, Here in this Canaanite woman is a suffering that seems to have advanced Jesus' learning. In this encounter, like the apostles in Acts and like every disciple in history, Jesus himself learns a clearer and wider understanding of the will of God by experience. So when we read the story, we feel a connection, uh, relatability with Jesus, but we also connect with the woman as well, because while wrestling with God is relatable and good, so is persisting to plead at God's feet. The woman in the story manages to persist in the belief that Jesus is somehow for her when all evidence seems to the contrary. So think about that. I am so horrible with uh, rejection, even perceived rejection, which is basically anything not positive to me. (laughs) Um, So had it been me, uh, I would have left dejected the first time Jesus didn't answer. It was like Jesus was silent. Oh, and then, you know, I would go back home. But it's more than just the silence. In the story, Jesus' disciples, all these people who are Jewish men, remember that. She's a Canaanite woman. She's been taught her inferiority and her outsideness her whole life. There's all these dudes being like, shut her up, get her out of here. And she keeps asking Jesus. Then there's this whole dog thing. Jeez. And even an implied no to her request is not enough to dissuade her. She goes on asking. She even disagrees with the implied no. As far as we're concerned, this woman is nothing short of a heroic icon of true faith in prayer. And in the end, it's someone else. It's not even her. Someone else is not even there who receives full benefit of the miraculous healing. She's asking on someone else's behalf. She disagrees with Jesus on someone else's behalf. Incredible things happen as a result of obstinate persistence in the face of God. When we muster the kind of wild, reckless faith to shut out competing voices and the sense of rejection in the the impending dread of no and just keep asking. Though not every request will be granted, hopefully we have a wide enough theology to understand that they won't and why they won't. But our concept of Jesus is so that we know to ask. Silence can feel very cruel, but silence is not the absence of God. There is no such thing. So let me end by reading again from an earlier quote. Faith is holding on to Jesus for dear life, like a drowning person to a life raft, believing that Jesus is good, even when his words do not seem to be. 
So with that in mind, let's actually invite God's Spirit to come and speak right now and make space to listen. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.